just want to invite the rest of us, if you have a Bible, to grab it. We're going to be in the book of Micah. Micah is one of the minor prophets. Find Matthew and go about seven books back, and you will find the book of Micah. It's so good to see you guys. Merry Christmas to you. You look fantastic. If I am looking at my notes the whole time, it's just because some of your sweaters are very distracting. And so, but kudos to you. Kudos to you. You went all out, and I did not. To be fair, Walmart was wiped out. Yeah. And no one else had any, so. All right, so Micah, uh, we're going to pick it up in chapter 5. Kind of an unusual Christmas passage to go through, but I am an unusual guy. And so we're going to go with it and see what the Lord has to say. Micah chapter 5, we're going to pick it up in verse 2 and just go through verse 5. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah... From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces. Then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men." That's the word of the Lord. Let's pray over the reading of God's word. God, thank you so much for your word. Although it was my voice that spoke, it was your word that we heard, God. Um, God, may we find strength, may we find encouragement in your word this morning, in that when we leave this place, may all of us just say how glorious and beautiful Christ Jesus is. And God, I pray that you would be mighty to save here and restore the broken and heal the sick. In Jesus' name, amen. The small size of Bethlehem is, reminds us of a common biblical theme throughout Scripture that God tends to use the insignificant things, insignificant places, insignificant people to do extraordinary things despite us thinking that he needs us to be powerful, he needs his people to be um, exceptionally, you know, wonderful in all that we do. In fact, God deliberately chooses someone in some places based off of their insignificance. And we find this place here that God uses, Bethlehem is probably one of the most insignificant places in all of southern Israel in this kingdom. The minor prophets are not typically well known. In fact, I don't really preach through them very often. But just to give you a little historical context, 
Micah, his name literally means who is like Yahweh. It is a very common name, uh, especially in the 8th century before Christ comes. Micah here, just like Bethlehem, comes from a very insignificant place called Morsheth. I can't help but wonder when Micah receives this word from the Lord that he understands like, oh, I get insignificant. I'm from a small town, like I'm a Higville up in the mountains and nobody even knows where my town is. So I get what God is doing here, continuing to do his method of operation of using insignificant people and insignificant places to do significant things for his glory. We know that the Assyrians, the wicked kingdom comes and tramples upon the northern section and kingdom of Israel. And they are really at the threshold of conquering the southern region of Israel. And so you get these kings of Judah trying to pay them off and trying to get them off of their backs. And in essence, what they did was use that money and these gifts to get the wicked empire off their backs only to affect those who were poor, which is why we get in Micah's chapter one through three, this scathing rebuke from the Lord about their oppression on the poor. And so in, if you were to section out the book of Micah, you would get the oracles of Micah to the Judean people that you have forsaken, you are oppressing, you are ostracizing the poor, and now my wrath is upon you. And then again, just like every other minor prophet that we've been going through over the past few weeks, it takes a dramatic turn, and you get from chapter 4 and, and into this chapter that we're into an oracle of a promise that is coming for those who endure, for those who Jesus Christ would redeem. And you can't help but to think it's, it's, it's another more, it's a, it's a story of, of Christ doing more with the insignificant. Christ doing more with those who have been ostracized and those who have been left in the margins of society. That God would continue to do his way of things using the insignificant and doing something significant through them. There are three, a few things that I'm just going to pull out of this text this morning, and we'll be out of here. And in fact, if you want to stick around, Spider-Man plays at one o'clock, but I won't judge you if you do that. Three things that happen, you could like hide out in one of these. <laughs> Never thought I'd be able to say that. I want to look at this town of Bethlehem. This, this text and this promise from, Lord, from the Lord to Micah tells us that there will be a king who comes and he will rule and reign over all things. And he's going to come, though, with, with, from lowly origins, this small town of Judea called Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem was a very small place. And in fact, it was the most insignificant clan in Judea. There is a Hebrew word that would describe the clan of Bethlehem, and the word wasn't necessarily about size. It was more or less about 
significance. In fact, the word that described Bethlehem that people would use would be trifling. Or, or another word that they would, would use would be insignificant. And yet it would be this insignificant, trifling. Y'all ever met somebody who's trifling? It would be this trifling, insignificant town that God would raise up a king that would one day be the king of all kings in this small town of Bethlehem, which shows us that God chooses something small, quiet, sort of out of the way, out of town kind of deal, and does something there that changes the course of history. And Micah the prophet stands in front of all of these people. I'm sure those who were living and dwelling in the land of Bethlehem heard this and they're like, oh yeah, boy, that's my town. Y'all been making fun of us. We just go on the outskirts. Nobody cares about us. We're insignificant. Y'all think we're just a bunch of trifling people. But God is about to do something from the small, insignificant place called Bethlehem. And why does he do this? Think about this and the why God would do this. Because when God acts this way, we can't boast in the merits, right? We can't boast in the merits or the achievements of men. We can't say, well, of course he uses Bethlehem. It's an incredible city, rich. It's where everybody wants to go. It's the tourist attraction of the region. God uses Bethlehem because it's a nothing town so that he can get all of the glory. God would use um, a manger, maybe because someone who had a nice hotel could say, see, he used my very nice and lavishing five-star rated hotel in Bethlehem. No, it's so that nobody could even care about a manger God would use that because it was insignificant. Think about God would choose to use a, a stable, a, a little thing in a barn to lay the baby in. Why? So that no craftsman can say, look how wonderful and, and beautiful my crib is that I made for Jesus. You see, I want you to see the relation to us and them that God would use us as insignificant people, humble, with nothing to offer, not so that we could boast about how glorious we are, or how incredible our works are, but so that Christ can say, did you see how insignificant that person used to be? And now I, I've stepped in and Christ steps in. So it wasn't based off of any of our merits or any of our good deeds or any of our good works that Christ would come in despite those things and be able to do something significant through us as insignificant people. I want you to realize that God does big things, and he, but he also does small things. In fact, I would say before God would do the big things, he would actually do the small things. Everything that God seems to do throughout Scripture begins small and begins with insignificant people and insignificant places. 
this text implying that the king would come from Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a town of just 500 people. In fact, they are the insignificant clan. And later we find that Jesus Christ, when he appears before Pilate, Pilate would place the plate above Jesus' head on the cross. Jesus, king of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, more of an insult than it was something that they can say, oh, at least he was the king of Nazareth. Boy, that was a great place. So even in Jesus's death, he's being mocked by where he comes from because everyone knew that that was an insignificant place. Israel's, they haven't figured this part out but they, they think that their insignificance is their limits in life. Got to think about Bethlehem. Their insignificance is a limit. But God would use it as their strength. In fact, what I would venture to say is that when we think what we think as a weakness is not a weakness at all, but a strength that God will use. And throughout the Bible, God always uses people He uses their limits and their insignificance. I mean, think about what God used to part the Red Sea. A stick, not a golden staff, not something laced with pearls and bedazzled with Christmas lights blinking on it. He uses an insignificant stick and he says to Moses, take this rod, throw it in the water and I'm gonna part the seas. He uses five loaves and two fish to feed thousands of people. He even uses a donkey to talk to someone to save their life. In fact, the KJV would call it something else. And I'll let your minds wonder and look that up later. And think about how God uses this principle throughout all of Scripture. Think about the Church of Acts, right? Always look at the Church of Acts and their birth and always think about what they did not have, but I think about what they didn't have and how impactful they were. They didn't have social media. They did not have Twitter, Instagram. They didn't have $60 million jets and vehicles. They didn't have million-dollar budgets They did not have the lights and the cameras and the giant screens in front of you and the very, very luxurious, comfortable seats that you are sitting in right now. They didn't have the Facebook ads going throughout all of the regions telling people to come to our service. They had limitations. Their start was insignificant. Their start was someone who just denied Christ and comes swinging out the doors, proclaiming the gospel in all people's language. And in that insignificant small start, here we are today. So I just wonder from this text and from the method that God chooses to use is what we are viewing as a limitation as a church, perhaps, maybe, God sees as a strength. Maybe the smallness that you think you have, God sees as something that he'll use to do something great. Maybe the insignificant gifts you think you have, 
Maybe they're not so insignificant anymore because God chooses to use insignificant people, insignificant places to do, insignific- to do significant things for his kingdom. It goes on, the second thing here out of this text is that Christ secures for us a promise of God. Now, it's always interesting, here's the promise that God gives to them that despite the judgment that's coming, despite all of these bad things that are coming, that there will be a king who will reign over all things and he'll come from Bethlehem. So there's the promise. It's always interesting to me when God gives a promise to Israel to some of the great patriarchs, to Abraham, to Moses, to some of these other people. It's always interesting because God always gives them the promise, like kind of in the middle of like their trauma. It's always like a promise that God is reminding them of because they've been in this long waiting period with God, with, with, with God fulfilling the promise. Think about Abraham and God's promise to him that I'm going to make you a great nation and I'm going to give you a son. And this had been decades upon decades of God giving him this promise until Abraham just throws up his hands. It's like, I'm done with all these promises, God. And you think through all of Israel and you think through all of these minor prophets and these major prophets who continue to proclaim that there will be a king that comes. But then the problem is that this is hundreds, if not a thousand years prior to Christ's eventual return or his coming. I would suggest that it's no different for you and I today. It seems like we've read scripture and we see how God can do amazing things and the glorious things. And it's a reminder of his faithfulness, a reminder of what he can do through us and his saving power and a reminder of how God will save and that he is mighty to save. But it just feels like, well, got him in the middle of a, of an issue here. It feels like the Assyrian army is literally at my doorstep, God. And so why aren't you moving And God always knows what his people needs. And so he comes here through the prophet of Micah, giving them exactly what they need to hear. Listen, people, I know the Assyrians, they're right at your door, but just know that the great work that I'm gonna do is gonna start with a very small and humble start. And I'm gonna use the insignificant clan of Bethlehem to do that. I don't know if that made them more angry, right? Because you're like, oh, great. You're going to use those guys? Like somebody significant is going to come from that clan? Like, God, that's the ghetto of Jerusalem. That's the ghetto of all Israel. And you're going to use somebody to come up out of there. I don't know if they, they wanted to doubt more just because of this promise, but surely Micah felt it because he was from this small, another small place too. So surely Micah was encouraged by this, that God's gonna continue to do what he's done from the beginning of time. Do something extraordinary through a place and a people who is insignificant. May that be an encouragement for us this morning. Maybe you're in a season where like, it just feels like it's dark all around you where you keep getting bad news after bad news, like, friend, be reminded of the faithfulness 
of God and that God is a promise keeper. I don't know how many days I think, well, God, I know you've been faithful all my life. I know you've kept all your promises all my life. But then there's always this subtle like thing in my brain where like he just can't be faithful tomorrow. He won't keep his promise tomorrow. And then tomorrow comes and I'm surprised. Oh, he is faithful. Oh, he did keep his promise. Let this be a reminder to us that God keeps his promise. And then there's like some incredible encouragement in this, in verse four, that God not only keeps his promises, but he will protect his people and give them peace. Look at verse four and let's look at some of these things. Look what he offers us. First, the shepherd, like Christ, when he comes, he will stand. And that's encouraging because he's not going to come and like just lie around waiting for us to serve him. No, the king is going to step out of eternity and serve us. There's another interesting humble element to this small beginning that Christ would continue to flip the script on everything that he would not come and lie down or, or yet lie down and have people serve him grapes and, and massage his feet and, and come and serve me. I'm the king. No, he stands with his people. The good shepherd, Christ the king, comes and he stands. He's on his toes. He's alert. He's working for all of those who trust in him. Second, look what he says, that he will shepherd his flock. Now, these Israelites would have understood the language of shepherding very clearly, right? They understood that the shepherd was there to tend the flock, to make sure the flock was fed, to make sure that the flock had no evil around them. And if they did, the shepherd would go take his staff and whoop the thing. And that's exactly what the image here that they're given of the one who is coming straight out of the ghetto to come to do for them, that he will lead them like a shepherd. And he'll he'll take his shepherd's staff and he'll yank them by the neck every now and then to get them right back on the path. And that he will make sure they are nurtured for, he will care for them, he will feed them, and he will fight off the enemies of their own heart. Y'all, the shepherd is still here and he's doing that very thing for us that he is leading you, he is guiding you, and he is protecting you from the enemy of your heart. Third, it says that he will serve us, I like this right here, y'all, in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God. Like his good intentions for us will not be hindered by a lack of strength, right? Right? He's not going to come down here and and say, I'm going to conquer the world, but turn out I'm just a weak person. No, he does exactly what he says. He is strong and mighty to save, and he will conquer. As we talked about in last week, when he says that he is mighty to save, this has militant implications. That he is waging a war on death and sin, and he will conquer it. He will not be weak. Death and sin will not conquer Christ, but he will be strong and he will conquer. And just like, think about that, the implications of us, like right here, what that means for us, that he is our strength, that he guards us and he protects us. He acts as a shield for us. 
And fourth, it says in this verse that he will be great to the ends of the earth. Now, this is like some eternal security that like should just allow us to breathe, right? He will be great to the ends of the earth. And for those who have been saved and called by Christ will endure with him to the ends of the earth. This is a promise of God doing exactly what he says he will do. And for those who are saved, he will bring them with him. And lastly, I like this last part because this has kind of given us this, this encouragement that I think we all need in the beginning of verse five, that he will be our peace. And yes, in context, this includes final earthly political peace. Somebody should have said amen right there, unless you don't watch the news, but you're a lot further ahead than I am. He will judge many people and he will be the king of kings and the lords of Lord. And it reminded me of the song we sang last week, Joy to the World, when he will rule the earth with truth and grace and make the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love, that one day the king of king will establish his peace and there will be no more enemies and there will be no more wars and there will be no more tears and there will be no more suffering. That's the peace that he has waiting for us. But I think that there is another element of this peace. It's the peace between our hearts and Christ. It, it is the, the issue that we are enemies of God outside of him. And that only through Christ Jesus can he bring peace and make us right before the Lord and, and really bring peace between us and God. And he does this through the cross of Christ. That Jesus Christ would have all of the wrath poured out on him that you and I deserved. And that our final judgment is not necessarily a final judgment. Our judgment is a thing of the past because for those who are called in Christ can look to the past to see our judgment because it was taken upon Christ Jesus. So now we are no longer alienated. We are no longer enemies of God through this. This is what he's offering us, a life of peace with him. The scriptures would, would say that we are hostile towards God if we are outside of him, that we are enemies of Christ. And there's only one remedy to this, and that's his saving power of Jesus Christ. And through the saving power of Jesus Christ, he gives us this peace in our souls, this peace in our heart that so many of us are longing for. Like I know some of us are longing for a peace during the holidays and all that kind of stuff and a fulfillment. It's not going to come through the Christmas trees and the caroling and all of those gatherings and all of those things. The peace that you really need that brings the life-sustaining fulfillment, that peace is through Jesus Christ. One other element to this, that the word Bethlehem, the town of Bethlehem, not so much the, the clan or the people of Bethlehem, 
although they were viewed as insignificant, the, the literal word of Bethlehem has a translation that means house of bread. I can't help but to think that this is just yet more um, of, of God like doing some really incredible things that out of the house of bread, there will be one to arise and to tell his people, I am the bread of life. He will, he will come and proclaim that he is the bread of life. He will be tempted in the desert to turn stones to bread. He will use bread to remind his disciples of his impending death. And we will use bread continuously through communion to remind us of this small start through Jesus Christ and a humble beginning. I can't help but to think this is just a foreshadowing that God is using as a messenger through Micah that you house of bread Bethlehem, one will come from you and he will be the bread of life. And if anything that should give us is more hope and more peace, that we rest in knowing that Jesus Christ is still here with the bread of life and the offer is still for us on the table, who came from humble beginnings, yet conquered death, hell, and the grave. As we approach the end of 2021, maybe you're um, coming towards the end of this year, just feeling at your best, like you're on a mountaintop, even though we literally are, but you're on the proverbial mountaintop. Like you feel like you have conquered and you have kicked 2021's butt. But then there are others of us that I just kind of feel maybe a lot of us feel like 2021 kind of kicked us in the rear end quite a few times. We feel like we've had disappointments and discouragements. We've had the bad health scares. We've had the losses in our life. And I just encourage you this morning that those things, they just, they feel huge but those things that have beat you down, God can still use because this is his method. That he uses the pains, he uses the sufferings, he uses the small, he uses the weaknesses, he uses the insignificance of your life and he sees them as a strength. He sees them as a catalyst for you. Can, can, we, can we just rest in that for just a second? Like if I were David, I'd be like, say la. All right, I'd just be like, whew. And then if I was charismatic, I'd run around the place, but we ain't got room for that. Hope y'all wouldn't do that. But just rest in that. That of all the disappointments, of all the pain and all the suffering, it is not in vain. God still uses those things for our good, for his glory. And so the Christmas message and the gospel of the Christmas message is that Christ has trampled the head of the enemy. The Assyrian army, where are they at today? They are no more. 
no kingdom will rise and conquer Christ's kingdom. And no enemy will rise and conquer his people. Christ is victorious. And the Christmas message isn't so much that a baby came and chilled out in a little manger and a drummer boy came up in there, played a snare drum, and mama wanted to beat his tail for doing that because she woke up, baby Jesus. That's not the Christmas message. The Christmas message is that Christ reigns supreme and he rules over all things. Over your suffering, over your pain, Christ rules over it. Over your disappointments, Christ rules over it. So we rest in that. 